0: Well, good evening, church. It's great to be with you tonight. Pastor Mike is on his way to Colorado, and I heard that he brought a pair of skis with him. He left a day early, and there's going to be six inches of snow tomorrow morning, so make whatever assumptions you want out of that. He's suffering there, he told us, but uh, I think there's other things in mind. No. He's having a great time. I'm sure he's going early so that he can actually get there because, as he said, he's preaching at a church on Sunday morning, and he wanted to make sure that he can fulfill that commitment. So you're stuck with me tonight, and we are going to continue in Genesis chapter 26. So if you open up your Bible, the ushers are coming through the aisles. Pastor Todd, you are the usher tonight, so if you need a Bible, lift your hand high. I've also repeated the text that we're going to be through on the PowerPoint. Probably a little bit different if we have the PowerPoint. Oh, Lord, I hope we have the PowerPoint. Otherwise, okay, good. Whew. I was going to say, we're all going to be in trouble without that. I am not very good at preaching, but I think I'm an average teacher. So that's the kind of format and style that I like to to share in. So there'd be a very... Uh, Big emphasis on the teaching component tonight as we go through 44 slides. I promise it won't take an hour and a half. It's not that long. Um, Some of them are visual. I know that people like to see things too, so those will go by a little bit quicker. But uh, if you need notes later on, I'll post these to Slack or the new Cornerstone Communication channel. So if you don't get every word, I'll be sure to post them later so you can follow up. And you can always ask me a few questions. But if you'd open up your Bibles again at Genesis chapter 26... Genesis chapter 26, we'll start by reading the first six verses. Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry, 26, verses 1 through 6, say, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. "...live in the land which I shall tell you, dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Father, we come before you tonight in thanks that we can be here at all, that we have the opportunity, the privilege, and the ability to serve you as we worship you, as we fellowship with each other, as we sing forth praise, God, as we seek to bear your name to this lost and dying world around us. We ask that you would fill us tonight with your spirit, Lord. Fill us with your word. Equip us, teach us that we may be more effective in that ministry, Lord, to make your name known. We love you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Isaac, to give you a little bit of perspective, on this chart here you have Abraham at the top, Isaac's in the middle in the gray, Jacob in the purple, and then Joseph a little bit later on. And Abraham more or less is done at this point. We're going to focus just one chapter here in 26 where Isaac is the focal point. We've seen him already since the beginning with Isaac and Ishmael. We've seen him at Mount Moriah as part of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, being told to sacrifice his son right before God intervened. So we know him as that secondary character, and he will continue that role again in chapter 27 where Jacob and Esau really take over. But here's his chance to shine. It's more of an overview of some of the more important things in his life. One of the lessons we'll learn that he was a man of obedience. If Abraham was the father of faith, you could argue that Isaac was the father of obedience. Later on for perspective, you'll know that Jacob will have two sons. I'm sorry, Jacob and Esau will wrestle for the blessing that Isaac will give. But Isaac doesn't just kind of keel over and die at that point. He still lives for another 50 years after that. So he kind of sees the fallout and the consequence of everything that's going on into the part where Joseph even is born and he sees that, that legacy continue, the promise continue that God gave Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, and so on forth through the generations. So as we mentioned, there was a city named Gerar. Anybody know where Gerar is? I'll give you four choices of Israel. Was it the north, the south, the east, or the west? You can call it out. I didn't think so. I didn't know either. I have to look at a map to find out, right? So we have a map to give you a little perspective. Israel is in the middle there. If you didn't know, it's about the size of New Jersey, and a lot of the western territory is on the Mediterranean Sea. To the south, you have Egypt. You have Saudi Arabia. You have Jordan to the east of Israel. And then to the north, you have Lebanon and Syria. So for us today, zooming in on Israel... Two cities that you'll see. One is Gerar, is going to be towards the shore and a coastal plain there between the mountain range where he is now in Beersheba. I'll give it away. That comes back later on in the chapter. And for perspective, Jerusalem is kind of in the middle of the state of Israel, the, the nation of Israel. We know that Isaac is in this area in blue called Be'er Lahai Roy. If you read chapter 24, it says at the end there that that's where he dwelt. And that becomes where God has him, and Beersheba is in that area as well. So in the beginning of this chapter, we read that he goes over to Gerar. Why? Well, here's your quick uh, chapter summary, because there's a famine in the land, where Isaac dwelt, and it caused him to move there. There are trials, though, which we'll read here shortly, with the people that caused him to move right back where he came from. So again, these notes will be online later on. I'm not going to read every bullet point that's up there. I'll bore you to tears with that. But here's the general breakdown of how we're going to go through these next 35 verses. So something I want to point out to you in that first verse, highlighted in red, that there was a famine in the land, that Isaac went to Gerar. Now, what is a famine? We all know it's a scarcity of food. We don't know how this one started. Was it something of pestilence? Was it something of insects with locusts? Was it something of drought? But for some reason, there was famine. This is common throughout the Old Testament. We see famines from Abraham, right? In chapter 20, most recently, he was moved on to Gerar as well because of a famine. Or when he came into the land to begin with, he kept going all the way to Egypt because of a famine. Ruth, famine. David, famine. Elisha, famine. But spiritually, why is this happening? Why do famines happen? It's to stir up a response in someone or someone's plural, which be the people of Israel in this case. It's enacted by God. It's not the physical that really matters of the famine, right? Not in Isaac's case, not in the story that we have tonight, but the spiritual. So the famine is a trial for Isaac. And how are we to respond to trials? It's so quick that we can raise our hand as good students of the word, and we'll say, James chapter one, verse two, right? Consider it all joy, throw it all joy, right? And we just kind of stop right there, right? Consider it all joy. But if you keep reading, right, the purpose is revealed just two verses later so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? Those trials are for our benefit, right? And Hebrew says that God chastises those he loves, so he brings those trials into our lives to draw us nearer to himself because God wants you to be spiritually full. And I don't mean this in the Pentecostal or charismatic way that you're going to be rich or name it and claim it and you'll be able to do any miracle that you want to do. That's, that's not the point here. But he wants you to be spiritually full, completely satisfied in him. We've been learning about this on Sunday mornings with Pastor Mike going through the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 really blessed me a lot in the first couple of weeks where talks about the riches of his grace, abundant towards us. And we'll get there in a few weeks. In chapter four, it says that we will all attain the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And you can read that over and over through the Pauline epistles, even through the gospels, that God wants us to be completely satisfied in him. He doesn't want you to be a 50% Christian, a 75%. even a 99% Christian. He doesn't want you to leave anything on the table. He wants you to come completely and unreservedly to him. And through this trial, among others, God is teaching Isaac how to live a life trusting in him. Just like for us, he is teaching the same thing. He's teaching us how to live a life trusting in him. And it's easy to criticize Isaac, right? We have the entirety of scripture, all 66 books to to look back upon, but this is all kind of brand new, right? Abraham was the first one that God called out and Isaac has is only had his example to emulate, right He's seen kind of secondhand how God has worked with Abraham, but he's not had that experience for himself, not yet, not until at least verse two. So he does what seems most natural. He thinks, oh, "I got to get out of here. All right, I got a wife. Uh, we don't know if he had kids at this point. Jacob and Esau may have been in the picture, maybe not. Uh, later on in the story, you'll see that uh, he says that Rebecca is his sister, but that story really kind of falls apart if you have two kids following you around everywhere, right? People start to pick up what's going on. So we don't know for sure if Jacob and Esau were around at this point or not, but in, in no case, he still has uh, shepherds that he needs to provide for other servants, herds, and other flocks, so he thinks, got to go somewhere else. This makes sense geographically because, as I mentioned a few moments ago, that area he's currently in, in Bier la hai is more of a mountainous region. Right? It's just generally not suited for big crowds of animals and people to dwell in. So he needs to find someplace more fruitful. Again, a coastal valley like Gerar really starts to fit the bill. So next in verse 2, highlight to point out, the Lord appeared to him. He says, don't go down to Egypt, but live in the land. Isaac may have stumbled when he got to Gerar. Maybe he's thinking, well, this ain't enough, right? There's already the Philistines here, plus me. If there was a drought and famine in the hill country, there probably is some extent of that also in the coastal plain. So he may have thought, well, what did dad do in this situation, right? Well, he went down to Egypt, so let me... Hold on. God intervenes. He commands Isaac to stay just where he is. He commands him to stay in the land promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. Isaac, like we so often do, are trying to find a physical resolution to a spiritual issue. Right? The trial is not, Isaac, where are you gonna find food? It's, Isaac, I want you to hear my voice. I want you to hear me. I want you to draw that relationship from me and with me and for me. Again, we are the same way. We all, I'm sure, have a story to share from COVID at the beginning of 2020. uh, Full disclosure, I'm an airline pilot. The travel industry was absolutely decimated and in some ways still is post-COVID. It was a really concerning time for me. I had been laid off here, another one of my points in the financial crisis of 2008, but I was single at that point. I actually went on vacation. (laughs) It wasn't a a bad deal for me after all. I took five months to go away to Israel for a semester of Bible college. It was actually a blessing in disguise for me personally, right? But come COVID, I have a wife and three kids now. If I say, see, I'm going on vacation, what do you think they're going to do? Well, We're going with you, you know, at least nothing else. Or something's got to change there, right? I can't just shun all of my responsibilities. I have to work through this, right? And I'll confess, I probably wasn't the most spiritual person in the beginning when I first turned I said, okay, they say I'm losing my job in September. It's currently March. That's five months of mortgage in between there. Okay, how much longer can I stretch this out if I steal from here and do the 401k thing? I had way too much of the worldly in my mind to solve that solution or solve that problem, so to make God certainly part of the calculus and give him thanks and praise, right? But I wasn't on my knees from day one, like, Lord, man, you got to fix this. I wish I was. I wish I can tell you I was, right? But it' a learning process for me, too. Again, we all have other experiences that we can share. So God intervenes. He tells him, dwell in this land, and note all the eyes that are highlighted here. He says, I will be with you. I give all these lands. I will perform the oath. I swore. I will make your descendants. I will give your descendants. All right? we see God is the initiator. God is the primary actor to help Isaac, just like he helps you and I. He doesn't expect us to take charge and come with him to him with a three-point plan, says, oh, hey, God, here's how I'm going to fix this, and I want you to bless this now, and how's this look? God says, I've got something for you. Just seek after me and I'll show you the way that you should go. God has con- demonstrated himself faithful through Abraham to Isaac already. This was what's called a suzerainty covenant. It means a, It's a fancy word for meaning a one-way covenant. And I'm not gonna go back into that. You can listen to the other studies from earlier in Genesis for all the details of what that included, but is that God would be the initiator, the sustainer, and the continuer of those covenants. Abraham just had to receive it. He had no other tangible part in it but just to show up, more or less. God continues to assure us today. He has recorded in the testimony of Scripture all that he has done, and we have great confidence that he will continue to be faithful. We have no reason to believe otherwise. And his greatest assurance that we have from God is that we get to spend eternity from him. That's the one subject that's written about over and over and over again, that we don't quite fully grasp, and I'm, I'm definitely there too, and I have a hard time articulating this to my kids, just how amazing it will be to be in the presence of Christ, right? It's not that they're going to be able to play video games all day or eat candy all night long or they don't have to sleep, they can stay up all night, right? Those are kind of the things that we think, wow, that's so cool. But being with Christ in his presence forever with no, no sorrow, no tears, no evil, no Vladimir Putin, right, none of that kind of stuff, it's going to be incredible, it's going to be amazing. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4 says this. This is one of my favorite verses, that it's an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled. It does not fade away. It doesn't lack luster. It doesn't just diminish over time. It's reserved in heaven for you, you who are called by Christ. God's word gives us promises today. Paul testifies in Philippians 4.19, probably a verse that many of us are familiar with, that God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And again, Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Lord is the one going ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not desert you. He will not abandon you. Do not be f- afraid. Do not be dismayed. And just like in Matthew chapter 6, if he so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown away, how much more will he not clothe you? So in verse 5, Abraham is the one, again, that was the recipient of this covenant. And this this verse kind of can trip us up a little bit if we're not careful because it says that Abraham obeyed, right? This covenant will continue because Abraham obeyed and he kept the charge. So it sounds like Abraham has a part in this, right? That he's doing something, that he might be earning this covenant somehow, right? When we look at totality of scripture, we know that's not exactly what it means. The Hebrew here is a little difficult to represent correctly, Abraham was not perfect. He didn't live perfectly. He was human, just like you and I. God made this covenant with him long before he had a chance to even receive it. God had decided. So a better word translated might be understood as that Abraham heard God and that he guarded the word, the charge, the commandments that were given to him. In short, it's that Abraham took his faith seriously. Yeah, again, he would continue to sin, but he would mature in his walk. He would draw closer to the Lord. Just like James would say, that faith without works is dead, right? Faith is not your works. It's not the substance. Yeah, but you need to be doing to represent Christ, to show the world that you have been transformed. Because if I, 15 years ago, would show you who I was and brought that same person here to the podium tonight and then told you that I was a believer and I was living my life for Christ, you'd be like, well, wait a minute, that guy, he's living in sin. What do, you, what do you mean you're living for Christ? That Those two things, they don't reconcile. They don't make sense. So there should be something in our lives that show that we have been bought for and paid by Christ and we are, are now redeemed and we're living a life transformed. This should be our desire. We should desire to put away sin and choose to walk with Jesus. And sometimes that might mean making some really difficult choices. It might mean that you look for a new job, that you can't continue in the office environment that you're currently in. Maybe you're the owner of a bar and you're advertising two-for-one shots every Friday night, come get your drink on, right? Maybe that convicts you. Maybe you have to go to no school. Maybe you're going to a public school right now, but you feel so convicted there, you feel so uh, just uneducated there in the world, in worldly things that you need to remove yourself from that and maybe go to a private school or a homeschool environment Maybe you have to change hobbies or interests, right? If you know that surfing with that crowd is going to make you get drunk every Friday night and do dope or something like that, well, then you got to get out of that crowd, right? You got to make that decision as uninteresting as it might appear because you have something better waiting for you in Christ. So Isaac, what was his response? How did this word from God affect him? Well, he chose to remain. He was obedient, and in fact, he was the only patriarch of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would remain in the land for his entire life. He was willing to do what God told him to do. So the question I pose to you and to me tonight is, are we willing? Because we're already able, right? If you have been born again by the blood of Christ, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. God is speaking, and you want to know how to listen? You open up the Word. The first and foremost primary way to hear from God is in the the contents of Scripture. And if you're not doing that today, this week, this month, this year, you're missing out. You're not going to hear God. He's not going to just drop some whisper in your ear if you're ignoring what he's given you already. So let's continue on in verse 7. Let's read from 7 through 11. Again, Genesis 26, verse 7 says, And the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife, because he thought, well, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. I can totally relate. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife, so how could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So in this section, I titled this, this slide, The Deception, right? Because Isaac is kind of being a little bit of a weasel here. Again, he took one out of his dad's playbook on how do I deal with this situation that's a little bit uncomfortable and I'm not sure what to do. He doesn't pray and ask the Lord, what should I do? He says, let me go to a worldly solution again. And again, not to beat up Isaac too much. We have the 66 books of scripture to look back. He's still learning at the ground level in this way. So there are about, what scholars calculate, 80 years between the events of Genesis chapter 20 where Abraham did this exact thing with Abimelech in Gerar and where Isaac is now. But don't get so caught up on Abimelech the person, because it's probably that Abimelech is just a title for a position. So when we see this event 80 years later, it's not the same Abimelech. It's probably the next generation or generations after that that are kind of being thrust in this, this story as well. It could have been the same person, but again, we don't know. It doesn't really matter in the end. So then verse 8, continuing on, the ruse is continuing for some time. It says he's been there for a long time, and then it says that he's showing endearment to Rebecca, his wife. Well, what does that mean, showing endearment? This is phrased differently amongst translations between the New King James, the New American Standard, NIV, take your pick. But the literal translation here, and Scott, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it says that Isaac was isaac Remember that Isaac's name means laughter, right? When Sarah was told, or Abraham was told, and Sarah overheard she laughed, right, that she would be pregnant. So Isaac's name means laughter. So the Hebrew is saying that Isaac was isaac with his wife, and I'll leave the rest to you to kind of figure out what that means. But no matter how much we try to conceal our sin, God is working to bring it to light not for our destruction. right? God doesn't seem to thumb us down and say, look, caught you in your sin again. Ha ha. No, he seems to bring it to light so we can deal with it. right? He doesn't want us hiding in darkness with our sin. Because if you're walking in darkness, you're not walking in the light. Right? You can't be in both camps at the same time. And if you're not walking in the light, you're not Fulfilling the purpose that He's made you for, you're not glorifying Him. You're not bringing attention to His name, and that's what this world so desperately needs. So whatever action was observed, it was enough to alert Abimelech. He was paying attention to the fact that they were more than just siblings, but they were, however, in fact, cousins in addition to spouses. Kind of like Abraham was half or Abraham was half brother to Sarai in that situation. So the rebuke here, Abimelech comes to them, and Isaac provides the same excuse his father did. He's like, oh, I thought you were going to kill me. I had no other choice. Like, kind of, well, this is just the way it is. And then, in turn, Abimelech's response is much the same as it was with Abraham. And he says, okay, everybody just leave him alone. Right? We see that the hand of the Lord is upon them. We don't really want to get ourselves in the middle of the situation, because it's probably not going to work out so well for us. Verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Verse 17, then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar, and dwelt there. So to focus on, Isaac's in this land, he's in Gerar, and he starts to sow there. And what's amazing that he reaps a hundredfold in that first year he planted. This is a miracle that we shouldn't be so quick to overlook. Right, just because Isaac's in Gerar, and he's kind of slightly out of the will of God, doesn't mean that the Lord's not going to use him. Doesn't mean the Lord's not going to bless him, provide for him, and strengthen him. Right? God is merciful and gracious beyond all measure. And even in our sin, he is still loving us and gently guiding us back to the path that we should go. Right? He doesn't just, again, string us out, leave us high and dry. It's incredible to think that he had a hundredfold receipt of his sowing in the first year. It takes farmers sometimes decades to cultivate the land, to get it to a position where it can really grow in abundance. Like if anybody's ever tried to grow grapes and and make wine, I've not, but I've heard that it takes several years of cultivation before you even get a crop out of it. Until like your third or fourth year, you have to just keep pruning back because those, those first fruits are worthless as far as what your goal is in the end. So, even more interesting, though, is that this is the first record we have in the Bible of sowing seed. Interesting that Isaac, who we know being a picture of Christ, is obedient to sow seed wherever God has placed him, and he reaps a crop larger than even he could imagine. Likewise, Christ, being the fulfillment of Isaac, the fullness, he is obedient to the Father, and then going to the cross, kickstarts the church where an untold number of souls are saved. Continuing on, Isaac begins to prosper. He continues prospering and becomes very prosperous. So he has flocks, herds, servants, and the Philistines envied him. Isaac was indeed blessed by the Lord. He didn't strive for it, he didn't earn it, certainly. It was given to him. God knows what he needed to provide, and and that was what, what happened. Isaac had these riches. And it began to overshadow. He began to overshadow the success that even the Philistines had. He became a tribe even mightier than their nation. But the Philistines didn't look to why Isaac had what he had, but just what he had at all. We too can make this error so quickly. And we need to be content, learn to be content with whatever position God has put us in. It doesn't mean we can't labor to improve But that should not be where we derive our joy and satisfaction from. Proverbs chapter 22 is is one of my favorite verses. It says, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. And, And God has us in a certain position, a certain season of our lives, and that can change one way or the other because he has a purpose for us in that. If you're rich, you should be, in a sense, helping the poor. But if you're poor, you should let the rich help you. There's a, like kind of a two-way learning process that goes for both there. One needs the other. So where we need to be focused on more than anything else of what I have or what I don't have is how can I be obedient with what I have and where I am at in life? If you have time, then give of your time. If you have money, certainly share your resources. If you have talents, which we all do, nobody can get out of that one, then you, you should give of your ability. This is what God made you for. And in doing so, God blesses you even more, right? He doesn't just say, be obedient because I told you to. And he very well could and be fully justified in doing that. But he says, when you're obedient, I'm going to give you spiritual riches. I'm going to give you even more than you asked for. And we get to keep these for all eternity. These riches will never perish. There will be no moth and rust destroying. It will be something even, even greater than we can think of. So in their fear, the Philistines say, go away from us. Again, they are scared. They're afraid that Isaac might conquer them militarily now because he is stronger than they are. But Isaac knows God has promised him this land, but it will be fulfilled in a time of God's choosing. Isaac has no quarrel with these people. He's letting God be the one to dictate the terms. So he moves on to a new place, even through conflict. In verse 15, It says that all the wells were stopped up. The servants had dug in the days of Abraham. So we might say that, well, he had every right as Abraham's son to continue using those wells, but he didn't care. He just moved on anyway. He says, it's no importance to me whatsoever. Let's continue in verse 18. It says, and Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, he called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called his name Sitnah. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said... For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So again, the conflict that these herdsmen of Gerar are anxious over the fact that Isaac has found water, and they need that too. Again, the famine is probably affecting them in some fashion, just like it is affecting Isaac. So he continues yet again to seek a peaceful resolution, just kind of goes further and further away. He looks for a new space to dig water. And he finally gets it at Rehoboth, which means broad places, a term we might use today being open space. So he has room to kind of stretch around. It makes me think that Isaac was a Republican, right? Because all he wants is a little bit of space, everybody else leave him alone, right? That's what Republicans want by and large. So then from there, verse 23, it says, Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuza, one of his friends, and Pai called the commander of his army. So again, going back to our map for a moment, we have the place he started was Beherlehi Roy, and he goes northwest to Gerar. And then he starts working his way back to Beersheba. We see these trials that God continues to bring into Isaac's life to put him back where he should have been all along. Interestingly, that when he gets there finally, God reaffirms where he should have been all along by appearing to him that night, another appearance for Isaac, and reestablishes the promise with him yet again that was given to Abraham and continuing through the generations that he would be the one to bless the people. Verse 27, And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Points to note is that The Philistines recognize the hand of the Lord on Isaac and his life. We have seen. And then again, those time markers are no coincidence. It's the same day again that they'll find water, that they sign this covenant, because God is trying to show Isaac to demonstrate that I am with you, that I am in control, and all you have to do is seek after me, and then everything else will fall into place. You don't have to worry. So this oath, why does Abimelech bring it up? It's very similar to one that he brings with Abraham. And some of the same people are there, again, as well. He brings Pichal, which, again, is probably just a title for commander of the army. But he brings that and Ahuzeth with him, just this little, like, trio, this council to portray strength in his position, right? You don't want to go in there weakling and say, like, oh, I've got nothing, but let's, let's be cool, okay? Like, let's keep peace. Because then you're just opening the door for Isaac to come in and conquer you if you show him that you have no way to defend yourself, So they go in with this position of strength. But again, Isaac has no reason to quarrel anyway. He's more than happy to sue for peace, if you will, because it's no skin off his back. So Isaac, again, he's twice blessed the same day. He attains peace and finds a new well for water. Naming that place for 'er Beersheba, which you might notice is a recurring place and theme throughout the Jewish scriptures. Right? You'll find it in the Torah. You'll find it in historical literature, all throughout even the prophets. Beersheba is this common place where God will appear. There'll be an altar. It's known as one of the southern boundaries of Israel as well. So a very prominent place throughout all scripture. Verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. I affectionately called this title the women on this slide. I couldn't think of anything better. If I wrote the anchors or something, I'm sure someone would have questioned me about that later on or the Jezebels or something like that. Anyway, so the choice of women here, though, is really a more reflection upon Esau than the women themselves. right? If that's what he's going after, and not just one but two of them, Right? They're going to be sowing destruction just like him because that's what he does. And it sets up the story in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 27, as we get to know more about Esau and how he did not care for the ways of the Lord. Right? Because he, at being the firstborn, was the one who should have been in order to receive the blessing, both physically and spiritually. Right? But he disregarded it completely. And I won't say anything more than that because that's uh, for next week's teaching. So in summary... Three things I want to kind of pull out to remember from today, and we're closing with this. To remember that trials are for our benefit. Right? Seek the word, seek prayer, seek fellowship. Don't seek the easy way out. Don't just run, right? Because that means God's gonna bring the trial back to wherever you're at because God is relentless in that way, again, for your benefit because he loves you and he wants to redeem you, restore you. He wants to teach you. Even if you've not done anything wrong, God will bring trials into your life because he wants you to draw closer to him. Second question I have for you and for me is that, do you trust God and that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do? Again, one of these things easier said than done. It's very difficult in the moment to fall to your knees when COVID 2.0 hits and says, Lord, I need you. All right, I remember how hard it was the first time. And I know even, even more so now than ever that I need to be looking to you, Jesus. And then lastly, our obedience, not our wealth, brings reward right? Do not desire to be rich in this world. Again, easier said than done. I understand that we have mortgages, we have kids to pay for, we have diapers and all these other kind of things that suck up so much of our resources, right? But that shouldn't be the focal point of our life to be a little bit more comfortable or to make things a little bit easier or to have a nicer tasting food or a nicer dinner or, or designer clothes and that kind of stuff, right? None of that None of that matters at all. But endeavor, strive, do work for those riches that continue to satisfy in eternity. If you have any questions, again, I'll be around in the foyer after tonight. I know it was kind of a whirlwind. It feels like it was just five minutes, but I think it was almost 40 minutes now. So let's close in a word of prayer, amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you for the life of Isaac that we get this little snapshot, Lord, this one chapter where he is the primary character and how you are working in him and through him. We thank you that you were merciful, that you are gracious, that you are loving and kind, and that though he erred, Lord, his heart and his mind was built on obedience, that he wanted to please you, Lord, and that's what we wanna do tonight. We want to live our lives in service to you. So Lord, forgive us when we fall, help us when we stumble. Please be gracious and merciful. Show us our sin, Lord, that it might be dealt with, Take it away, God, that we might bring honor and glory to your name. Go before us this week, Lord. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.